open line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, August the 15th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair today. Let's get the week off to a roaring start. That can only happen if you join us live on the air with a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 888 which you know, it's 86 26. Well, what a fantastic week number one for Team NL at the Canada Summer Games in Niagara, Ontario. Eight medals. I mean, pretty great stuff, and in large part thanks to the swimmers. Swimming NL had a brilliant week out in Niagara, led by, of course, and I saw the video of them arriving back at St. John's International Airport last night, a triumphant return, led by Chris Weeks. With these three medals around his neck, it's the first gold medal that this province has won since 1993 for his goal in the 50-meter free. Uh, fly, pardon me. It also set a Canada Games record, so absolutely wonderful stuff coming from the swimmers. Congratulations. So, uh, Nathan Pelly, Nathan Luscombe, Thomas Pelly, Nathan Luscombe, Chris Weeks in particular, bringing home the hardware. Absolutely stunning. All right, good luck to all participating in week number two. And it's worth recounting at least one more time for now just how incredible a week it was for Jada Lee. So, we all know she made history when she became the first woman to play on the men's baseball team. She appeared against Alberta in the fourth inning, three up, three down. So, it didn't end there. So, then over the weekend, I set my PVR to tape Blue Jays Central. It's the pregame show before the Cleveland Guardians and the Blue Jays were live on TV. So, lo and behold, she was interviewed on that show. Pretty cool. Then, of course, she gets a tour of the building, a tour of the clubhouse, meets some of the players, throws out the first pitch, interviewed during the game when it was live on television as well. So, whirlwind week, to say the least, for Jada Lee. Impressive stuff. When she went to throw the first, uh, the opening ceremonial pitch, she fired it in there, too. That wasn't lobbed in and hoped that she caught the, made it, to, made it to the glove of young Zimmer behind the plate. Imagine Zimmer, huh? he didn't put out one of the boys. Anyway, she fired it in there. Apparently, George Springer sitting on the Blue Jays bench says, wow, she can fire it, and she can. So absolutely great stuff for Jada at the games. And it's not over. Big career ahead of her. Wants to play for Team Canada. That seems quite likely. Uh, go on to pitch in the NCAAs at the college ball in the States. Also seems quite likely. Uh, sticking with some of our female athletes for a second, Maggie Connors from St. John's plays in the NCAA at Princeton. She's been named to Canada's 23 women roster to play off against the uh, U.S. in the, the annual series between the two hockey giants on the women's side. So congratulations to Maggie Connors for making it to the next stage for maybe a secure spot on the world championship team. Back to the games for a second. What a special congratulations and shout-out this morning to tennis player Declan Walsh. He's the first ever recipient of the inaugural Pat LaShelt True Sport Award. Mr. LaShelt apparently was a mainstay on Alberta's team as a chef de mission, assistant chef, for almost 20 years. So recognized true sportsmanship displayed by young Declan Walsh, he is the recipient of the Pat LaShelt True Sport Award. I think that's tremendous. Congratulations to Declan. What else do I got here? A couple of scribbles. Oh, it's just a week away from when people in the region will be able to see Alex and the Hook and the Stanley Cup on parade, which is pretty cool stuff. So one more week, seven more sleeps. Or six more sleeps? One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven sleeps. All right. Uh, oh, this is an important one, too. 
So, so many of you are familiar with the story of how we lost Chris Abbott, who, of course, better known in many circles as Buddy the Buff. If you want to go to the ECHL website, you can indeed vote for Buddy to be the mascot of the year. He's up against the Florida Ever, Everglades, Everblades uh, mascot named Swampy. So there's only two of them left. There's only one day left to vote. I think that would be apropos if Buddy was the mascot of the year again this year. What do you think? A couple of interesting ones. So today in 1977 at the Ohio State University, home of the Buckeyes, they received a radio signal from deep space. It was part of a SETI project, S-E-T-I. SETI stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So they received this radio signal from deep space. They now call it WOW Signal. And why was that? Because that was the notation made by a volunteer on the project today in 1977. And this one, this movie still kind of haunts me every now and then. It's Apocalypse Now. So it was a 1979 American epic psychological war film. Francis Ford Coppola, of course, the director, and a pretty eclectic, wild lineup of actors. Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, Martin Sheen, for, uh, Frederick Forrest, Sam Bottoms, Albert Hall, Lawrence Fishburne, Dennis Hopper. It is one of those truly bizarre films. One won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and it was released today in 1979. Okay, how are we doing on the phone there, uh, fans? So, we need your help. The OCM Cares needs your help. The Single Parent Association, Newfoundland and Labrador, needs your help. As do some 700, at least 700 families, just in preparation to go back to school. You've heard me talking about the fact that I don't want to wish our summer away. Of course not. But preparations are underway, whether it be at the school district itself and the final hiring of teachers. And hopefully we'll get some more information about what the results were of the high school symposium to make sure supports were in place for the graduating class. But to know that there, I'm told it's at least 700 families have applied for the back-to-bus school supplies, or block the bus. I mean, it's truly something else when that many families just in this region don't even have the capacity to fill up a book bag with the bare necessities to go back to school. So we're not talking about the latest and greatest electronics or the coolest fashionable shoes or whatever duds are deemed to be the coolest out around now. Simple fundamentals to go back to school. So you can go to the Village Mall and make your donation. You can actually go to our website and just look for Block the Bus, and you, there's an opportunity to make a donation right there. So there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families that need our help on that front, so I wanted to throw that out there. I meant to last week a couple of times, but please do exactly that, because that program will be wrapping up this week on the 19th. All right, speaking of back to school... This I'll try to. There's a few issues stemming from this. So the school lunch association, and yes, kids eat smart. They do important work in the province of schools where they're present. You know, nutritious meals throughout the day. Now school the school lunch program they're ramping up. You know, bringing staff back in, preparing for September. They're going to see an increase of their funding, which used to be about one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars per year from the government, to now five hundred thousand dollars because of the tax on sugary drinks. So good luck to School Lunch Program, Kids Eat Smart. They're excellent programs that we rely on. Just one more, you know, again, we need need to help uh, filling up backpacks. And we need Kids Eat Smart and School Lunch Program to feed children at school, many of whom would not have had an opportunity for a healthy, nutritious meal if they weren't in school. That just speaks volumes. And the tax on sugary drinks, based on last week's precursor program launch of Rethink Your Drink, You never know what's going to catch the attention of the listener. 
My email inbox, I take an unscientific poll when I just have a look at what people are talking about and the emails that I receive. It dominated my email inbox. 90% of it, quite negative. So whether it be worries about the numbers of jobs in the manufacturing sector, the Retail Council of Canada, and the lack of answers so they, their retailers, their members, can be ready to go on September 1st, and then the whole concept of tax grab, and if we're only going to focus on these drinks, what are we doing about cereal, and up and down the line. So we've talked about it a fair bit, but if you'd like to talk about the tax on sugary drinks and have any questions that I might be able to answer, might not be able to answer all of them, about what's included, what's exempt, and yes, whether or not it amounts to a cash grab or tax grab, that's your opinion. If you want to share it, fine. The government does anticipate people will still buy what they like. If it's Pipsy you like, you're going to buy it regardless of the 20 cents per liter additional tax coming on September 1st. They're forecasting annual revenues to shoot up. The debate in the House of Assembly was talking about that revenue stream would be set aside for new programs in an effort to encourage healthy eating, healthy lifestyle. Doesn't look like that's exactly what's going to come to pass. They're talking about increasing funding to current existing programs, namely school lunch program for one. So if you want to tackle it, we can do it. All right. Not sure exactly what to make of this story. In many corners, this is going to be really good news and a good indicator of opportunities yet to be understood in this province. But it looks like on the 23rd of this month, Prime Minister Trudeau and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz are going to be in this province to sign a green energy agreement. All about the hydrogen industry and potential for. Okay. So a few things that I think are important inside of this. Now, we don't have all the answers required to know exactly where the public could and should be concerned. If you're on the uh, Port of Port Peninsula, in and around Stephenville, Stephenville Crossing and area, and you're worried about the eyesore that would be the 164 wind turbines. Okay, some people are worried about birds and some people are worried about noise. All right. You know, the business model and whether or not they can stand on their own two feet, this one out on the West Coast, of course, from World Energy, uh, what's the name of that outfit? Anyway, they're, they've got a proposal in. It was put in front of the government in June, but just last week. The government said they have to go back to the drawing board in the environmental assessment world. Many more details needed to be forwarded to the province before final approval. But at the exact same time, they're using that area in Stephenville for a meeting between the Prime Minister and German Chancellor Schultz to sign a formal agreement. So there's a little feel of cart before horse here. And as it pertains to government monies... We asked Minister Parsons, he says at this moment in time it's no plan to put government monies into these projects. That's not a firm no. So whether it be whether we lease or sell the land, if the project goes south, it would be nice to be able to get that land reverted back to the ownership of the people of the province. What sort of royalty might be in play? A firmer and better understanding about the numbers of jobs up front and continue operational jobs? So the province, we're not sure exactly what they're going to do. But again, signing an agreement on the 23rd of August for something that has not yet been finally approved by the province is interesting, I'll say. In addition, we don't know yet exactly what the provincial government might do with programs and support and subsidies and tax breaks. We don't know. And then, of course, there's other proponents that are coming forward, whether it be in the Port of Argentina and otherwise. But the federal government, sometimes we do a funny thing where we talk about provincial government money and federal government money as two distinctly different things when it just is a difference on where I sign the, my tax return. So it's my money, your money, 
that the federal government is going to bring to bear, possibly. Because inside their own program surrounding green hydrogen, they call it a strategic priority. And they have plans to establish funding programs, long-term policies, and business models to encourage industry and governments to invest in the growing hydrogen economy. So, it might not be as simple as whether or not the province is going to put any money in. And this is not to say it's good, bad, or indifferent for any type of support of this industry, which, which is in its infancy in this province. But it looks like the feds, based on their own strategic priorities, they're, they're talking about putting money in. But you want to take it on from whatever angle, we can do exactly that. Yeah, the proponent's called World Energy GH2. All right. And then the other side of it is whether or not, because it is a relatively new industry in this country in particular, whether or not we're going to do a good job to capture all of the proprietary uh, issues and research and development and maybe to monetize and be the hub for some of that type of research and advancement in technology. On that front, of course, we know that Memorial University and the Marine Institute, CNA and others, will play a key role. I want to say good morning and congratulations to Ed Martin, Jr., I mean, it's unfortunate we have to say this, but not that Ed Martin, not that family, not the former Nalcor executive Ed Martin, but Ed Martin Jr. He's now been named as the new director of the Memorial Center for Entrepreneurship. He begins his role today. Mr. Martin has a proven track record as a successful entrepreneur and innovator and leader, and so this looks like a terrific selection by those folks over at the Memorial Center for Entrepreneurship. And that group, in conjunction with the co-op programs and the Genesis Center, will absolutely play a pivotal role in making sure we, we see opportunities grow in the future. Because it's, you know, we're going to see some of the traditional industries endure for however long, but the new change and whatever the just transition looks like it means to you, and even if it's not directly associated with whatever transition, it's going to be important that those two entities at MUN, the Genesis, Genesis Center and the Center for Entrepreneurship, that they thrive. And Mr. Martin has taken on his new leadership role today as new director. Uh, you can go to MUN Gazette and read a story about Mr. Martin and his achievements, successes, and some of his background, which is quite diverse and super impressive. But congratulations to Ed Martin Jr. Good luck. Go get him. All right, let's go with a little bit of travel-related stuff. So the Beta Spare Highway is now reopened. That's good news. They're saying that the fireway impacting the highway is 20% contained. They are referring to the Paradise Lake fire as uh, out of control still. Then there's some concerns with the, some of the cabin owners who were refusing to take the direction from those fighting the fire and actually stay off some of the access roads. Now some of them have been reopened, and you'll just have to, you know, I guess you're going to do as you see fit, but just be careful as you find yourself in and around those fires in those cabin countries possible possible set yourself up and or the firefighters for some potential additional unnecessary risk and marine atlantic had a couple of mechanical issues over the weekend that saw some of the crossings upended but now it looks like they're going to be able to get back on track over the weekend the atlantic vision was pulled from the Argentine north sydney run to take over for the highlanders which of course sails between Porto basque and north sydney based on some engine trouble above or aboard <laughs> the highlanders but it looks like they're going to be Getting back in action today with normal crossings. Some 1,000 passengers have been impacted. If you want to cancel, you get a full refund. If you want to rebook, you're going to have to get in touch with the reservations team. And, of course, every time that there's a hiccup, it creates a backlog, and that will make for some frustrated passengers. And, of course, based on the conversation we had on the show not long ago, you know, the thought was maybe we should prioritize some spots on the two vessels for people who are residents of the province. And I guess going the other way, residents of North Sydney, or Cape Breton, or Nova Scotia. And the comment was that BC Ferries do exactly that, but they've walked away, walked away from that program. 
So that's no longer in play. And sticking with travel, I know a few people who are waiting a long time to get their passport. So the backlog and the numbers on the passport issue is really quite something, just for context. Uh, By August 11th of this year, over just about 1.1 million passport applications had been filed. More than 550,000 of those applications came in since April. So there's huge backlogs. I think there's some 340,000 applications that are sitting in the backlog pile. They'll talk about trying to hire the resources and da-da-da-da-da. And then, of course, there was one-time exemptions for travelers coming into Canada with their Arrive Can app. Uh, hopefully that alleviated some of those delays, but the passport issue remains. What people are also saying and telling news media outlets is that when they know there's a 48-hour uh, uh, emergency approval mechanism, and if you can show and prove that you've got travel booked, that you need to be fast-tracked up the line, people are faking their travel plans. Probably not helping an already burdened system, but people are doing it. So, you know, booking a flight that they're going to cancel, they bought the cancellation insurance just to get their passport sooner than some of the people who will wait maybe as many as six months. But the fake travel plans are apparently now also part of the issue. Quick tour down around Kuwaitavata, Kitty Bitty Lake. There might be a full lockdown coming inside the penitentiary. Apparently, correctional officers are just walking away from the careers and can't do it. And some of the 24-hour shift implications and the sweltering heat and the tension that grows as a result. So a lockdown would mean the loss of all kind of stuff, the ability to get outside, to go to any programming, mental health or addictions or otherwise. Even Cindy Howard and her team at the John Howard Society, um, Cindy Murphy, pardon me, and her team at the John Howard turned away at the door, didn't have guards to supervise their visit. So I would imagine if it's at that point now and the potential for full lockdown is in the throes, you can only imagine the tension inside Her Majesty's Penitentiary. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's do it. Line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Morning, Mr. Daly. How are you on this uh, Monday morning? Very well, thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm doing good, too. Just wanted to make some comments on the uh, perpetual gong show that is Donald Trump. Okay. Uh, as you know, uh, search warrants were executed by the FBI at his Florida state last week. And uh, I just want to make some comments about uh, some of the, I guess, comments <laughs> that are coming out of the news media down there from from some uh, observers. Um, you know, any time that a uh, police force, in this case the FBI, or in our country it could be the RCMP or any other police force, they execute a search warrant on a private residence. That's pretty serious stuff. Uh, that means that a judge has uh, signed off on a warrant, a search warrant, to allow the police to go in there to search for evidence of a crime. And uh, the police, in order to get that search warrant, they, they had to give information on the road to that judge. It's not just go in and say, we believe this uh, to be the case. We believe we might find evidence. Well, we might not find evidence. We don't know. We just want to go in there on a fishing expedition and uh, look around. Because you have a constitutional rights 
to uh, keep agents of the state out of your house, right? Well, s- a specifics and also a specifics associated with, with uh, particular or specific crimes or yeah. laws that have potentially been broken. Now, just a, a few things. I don't know what was found. I don't know what's going to become of this. I have no earthly idea. Uh, but, you know, the same group that were vilifying anyone on the so-called left to the political spectrum in the United States with any conversation surrounding defund the police are now talking about the abolishment of the FBI. It's just hard to, you know, square that circle and take some of these things seriously. When the crimes are specified, and there's some confusion here, whether it be about classified or declassified information, which is, I think, kind of secondary to the issues that are at hand, and reference to the Espionage Act. Of course, that draws imagery of the Rosenbergs and Matahari and people being executed, when in fact that doesn't necessarily mean that you spied and sold secrets or what have you. There's all sorts of issues surrounding the Espionage Act, and then it's obstruction of justice, and that's a distinct reference to the fact there were subpoenas for the return of the documents. Apparently, one of Trump's lawyers actually signed off on saying they were all have been returned, and I guess based on CCTV footage, they know that's not true, and now they obviously know it's not true when they made their way into Mar-a-Lago. Last word for me, and then I'll let you go. And at the same time, I'm having a hard time. It's dizzying to keep up with the, uh, the comebacks, is that the president has all the opportunities in the world to declassify information of his own accord, when in fact that, has, that is simply not true regarding anything to do with the nuclear arsenal. But at the same time, they're talking about declassified uh, documents that were planted by the FBI. So which one is it? So it's all really quite strange. Uh, to try to keep up with the goings-on. What I'm choosing to do is to see what next steps may be because I don't know exactly what's inside obstruction and or the Espionage Act, nor do I know what they found, nor do I know if anything's ever going to come from it because up until now, he's been Teflon, just like Gotti. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, apparently now uh, there's an investigation into the lawyer that signed off on the... uh, the amount of information that was turned over initially and saying was all turned over and apparently uh, it's not. So they could be in legal trouble now too. The lawyers were signing these documents attesting to the fact that all the, uh, all the documents that these residents of Florida were turned over when it appears that they weren't. So, you know, I think a lot of this is just ignorance in the media and a lot of it from, from politicians who happen to be lawyers. A lot of these uh, politicians in, in the Congress, in the in the House, and in the Senate on the Republican side, they're shooting out their mouths. They're saying that uh, evidence was planted by the FBI when there's absolutely no evidence of that fact, much less proof. You know, you're making very serious allegations. Many many of these uh, legislators down there are members of the bar. Uh, what you're, you're calling you're calling the administration of justice into disrepute. You're saying that FBI agents have committed very serious criminal. Uh, activity, but yet you offer no evidence of that, much less proof. And it's just uh, this perpetual gun show. It just feeds on itself. And it's just, um, I don't know. Uh, you know, every day in the United States and other countries uh, like uh, that have similar legal systems like the United States, like our country, police officers execute warrants on uh, private residences and, and businesses every day. And this is just a, a routine um, part of the uh, procedural and administrative uh, segments of the justice system. Uh, they go to a judge. They satisfy a judge that there's reasonable grounds to believe uh, that there'll be evidence related to a crime uh, and lo- located at this particular residence. And uh, the judge, after hearing the uh, application for the warrant, will, uh, will either sign off on it if he believes there's reasonable grounds or not. 
And if he does, the warrant is valid, and the police go execute the warrant. This happens every day. What will happen to Trump? I don't know. Is he going to be prosecuted for anything? I don't know. I have no idea. And and the words are very carefully chosen, you know, so it's it's a raid and unprecedented. Yes, it might be unprecedented that there's been this type of uh, search warrant executed at a former president's home. But the whole business, how they try to make it to be so sinister, a raid, my God. The FBI also gave the Secret Service a one-hour heads-up. It wasn't a no-knock warrant where someone's dragged out of their bed in their underwear and all that kind of stuff that we've seen in the past. It wasn't like that at all. So don't take my word for it. Take the, vis- take the images' word for it. Take the visuals for it. You know what I mean? It is what it is. So, again, I don't know what's going to become of this. I have no idea. And at the exact same time, he's been testifying in New York about some of the, his own business dealings in a civil matter where he, I think he pled the fifth for like 445 times uh, throughout these, the deposition. And, of course, he's on record as saying of guilty, only guilty people plead the fifth. So there's just so much going on. And as I say, it's head spinning. It's dizzying. And I don't know where any of this lands, but it's the unbelievable over-the-top reactions Regardless if you are all in or all out on Donald Trump, people have just lost it. And maybe that's just the echo chamber that is social media making me feel that way. But the things you read, like one of the, I guess, notable podcasters, even though I've never heard of him, Stephen Crowder or something, he says, tomorrow is war. I mean, we're talking about civil war over a judge signing off on a warrant application that was executed, as happens every single day in the United States, and it's war? Like, I mean, what's wrong with people? And the judge who signed off on the warrant uh, to allow the FBI to uh, go into Mar-a-Lago to uh, seize, uh, you know, whatever evidence they did seize, the judge is now being threatened. And the webpage on the uh, federal uh, judicial website for the Southern District of Florida, the, 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 uh, the people who manage that website, they had to pull down the information about him. You know, he's being threatened. His family's being threatened. There's anti-Semitic comments being made about him online like this is this is banana republic stuff right yeah it's certainly on the very doorstep of that uh you know and then there's pictures uh, floating around that are photoshopped not real at all the judge having his feet massaged by Ghislaine maxwell and then the fbi agents who were part of the warrant application their names were published by breitbart because uh the former president gave them the information where all the other relays of that type of info had redacted the names for the obvious reasons so it's a tinderbox down there, that much I know for sure. And regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, the party of your, your the favorite party of yours and or individual politician, let's just collectively try to take deep breaths and not allow some of that nonsense to bleed even more than it already has into Canadian political discourse and social discourse because no matter who you are, where you are, who you want to vote for, none of that is good for us, none of it. There is no selling point. There's no upside to what we see happening south of the border with our key ally, our number one trading partner. And a lot of what happens there has a direct impact on us here. So, I don't know. I, I try not to consume too much of that news, but it's hard not to. Yeah, uh, I saw a poll yesterday, and uh, I think it was CNN, that if the uh, Republican presidential primary were held today, Trump would uh, get 58% support. Yeah, it's pretty well. It is, you know, and if you look at just take him out of the equation for a minute. The people who should be running against him uh, in the primary in t- for 2024, who do you have who's going to run against him? If anybody runs against him at all, it's going to be people like DeSantis. Mm-hmm. Florida governor. Yeah. He's a mini Trump, right? 
Well, it's more charismatic, younger, uh, has certainly a lot of the same type of political rhetoric and what have you. So he's the only other name we really hear about of any consequence. So, again, whether or not this is good for Trump or bad for Trump on all fronts, politically and or in the criminal justice system, whether it's good or bad for Ron DeSantis, I think there's a lot yet to be understood before any of those firm declarations can be made. So that's where I am. I'm just kind of waiting to see if there's another shoe to drop or if it's going to be like virtually everything else inside of his uh, presidency and business life, if it just comes and goes with minimal slaps on the wrist, if anything, because that's really what's happened over the years. Uh, and also, you know, speaking of the FBI and this uh, warrant on Merrick Garland, and people say he may have an axe to grind. He may, but he seems to be a pretty conscientious person, been involved in some of the highest profile cases uh, in the country in my lifetime. And also Christopher Ray was handpicked by Donald Trump to be the head of the FBI, so you know, it, it's just all sort of crazy. Defund the police, how dare you? And then next thing you know, they want to blow up the FBI and the Department of Justice. It's all, I don't know. Anyway, last word to you, Colin. Uh, I, I think uh, if, it, if it comes out that uh, these documents were as serious as uh, being led to believe in the uh, in the search warrant applications and that Trump did, in fact, have uh, top secret and uh, sensitive compartment in, com- compartmentalized information, at his private residence in Florida, and he took those, if if it turns out allegedly that uh, this is true, that he took those documents down there. Uh, the question that has to be asked is, and it is being asked, is why would he have those documents? Is he trying to sell them? Um, and a, a more worrying, worrying uh, prospect that nobody's talked about, if he had those because he was being blackmailed, I mean, that, that talk's been going on ever since, uh, even prior to the 2016 election about Russia, their influx, the meddling, people call it a hoax, whatnot, even though the American intelligence agencies, every single one of them said Russia meddled in the 2016 election. doesn't mean they had Russians in voting booths, so they didn't hack into voting machines. That's not what any of that means. But, of course, the, the political conversation has lost all, or for the most part, it's lost all sensibility and reasonable approach and dealing with what's known versus what people hope is the case. Uh, Colin, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for this. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. I know. Yeah, that's quite the topic. And again, I have no idea where it's going. You know, some people hear some of the words associated with things like espionage and automatically it's the Rosenbergs. And obstruction and whether or not that carries any significance and or any weight regarding prison, uh, prison time. Obstruction in the United States based on the portion of the criminal code that are quoted in that application for a warrant, I mean, some of these things are 20-year sentences maximum, right? So if you want to chime in on American politics, we can. And, of course, there's so many issues in our own province and country that we can focus on it. But I don't think it's an overstatement to say that a lot of how we think and talk and make our money and make our trade and how politics unfolds, there is really a distinct impact, influence, from the United States of America. Regardless if people think that's true, it's quite obvious that there is. So these conversations maybe give us an opportunity to install some checks and balances so that we don't end up like they are. Because, again, I don't care what party you support. Nobody really thinks that what we see in the States is good for us, do they? And good for our political discourse and commentary, social cohesiveness, realistic approach as mature adults. I mean, really? Nothing down there is any good, is it? Let's take a break. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM.
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Don, you're on the air. Good day, sir. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm not really. I'm still above the soil. <clears throat> Listen, I, I got to ask you a few questions. How many doctors in the Liberal government, number one? Oh, you want me to go one by one? I think there's... No, not one by one. I don't need a name. Just, just give me a quick accounting. All right. I don't really enjoy playing these games at you, Don, but there's two as far as I can remember off the top of my head. Haggy and Fury. What about Dr. Janet McPherson? What? What about Dr. Janet McPherson? Who's Janet McPherson? Oh, my God. She's a health minister. Comes on with Haggy and, and Fury. Or chief medical doctor, whatever. Okay, and so she's not part of the Liberal government, but anyway, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald is her name. Okay, now now you you mentioned three weeks ago, I'm pretty sure you said this, I can't quote you, you said there were uh, 30 new hires, 39 new hires in the, in the health system and 45 gone. Yeah, there was numbers that were offered by the authority itself. Some while back, that's not really new numbers. My comment there, I suppose, if I remember correctly, is it's fine to tell me that we hired 39, but if 45 left, we're still down six. So I think that's the point that was being made. Yeah, well, that's good, because the point was made, six retired. But the other 39, where did they go? What? Where did the other They're working inside Central Health. Is there a specific question in that? I I don't know what to say. 39 were hired by Central Health, so they're working in some capacity in Central Health. Right, because Eastern Health got no problem. And these regional boards here, I contacted Steve Mull to get a number in corner book for a mobility issue. They have no access to each other's uh, records or nothing. So why do we have regional health boards? I applied for transportation in St. John's. They didn't even know I had my leg cut off. So I don't understand all these health boards here. They're not communicating with each other. And now each other's information. the process is underway for there only to be one, uh, as opposed to Labrador, Grenfell, Western, Central, and Eastern Health. That um, The amalgamation or merge is happening right now. Thank you. Okay, that's good. Mm-hmm. And then didn't I hear you report that a private company hired 75 second-year med students from month, recruited no. them? No. Sure, I heard that. Not for me, you didn't. Well, it was either Tim Powers or somebody said on your show. Well, I don't know anything about it. Um, and 75 doctors all to be hired at the one time by one private outfit seems a pretty massive number. I don't know if Tim That's said right. it. I'll drop him a, no- a note and see if he knows anything about it, but I don't. Exactly. Okay, I have one more thing. Last one. The sugar tax. Okay. <clears throat> this is great. Beautiful. Now, what's next? Pancakes, sir? What's next? Uh, uh, fruit, a uh, fruit in a can that contains sugar. So, how far are you going to stretch this food on tax? Tax on food. Uh, I'm sorry, tax on food. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we talked about it last week that you know, if people are talking about especially young people and the way you begin your diet life as a child and continue to grow, a lot of the choices will be influenced by the choices you make today. So people say, you know, like, how about the high sugar content of cereal? If we're talking about things they consume day in and day out, it's not just energy drinks and Pepsi or whatever other full-bore cola people are on, but it's the other things, and the question I think is fair to ask is, 
where does it stop? Does government simply exactly. want to tax what they think is bad for us or deemed to be bad for us? Are we going to see government picking winners and losers and subsidizing things that they think are good for us or better for us? It's a fair question. Where it ends, I don't know. I don't either, because I'll tell you, years ago, remember, cholesterol was a big thing. Don't eat eggs. Now every commercial says, get cracking. Well, you know, I think like most things that we consume, moderation is probably the most important well, the part of the conversation. Go, yes. You know, sugar yeah. and cholesterol and what types of fats are good for you and bad for you, what you need to avoid. Look, I mean, and the, what's a carcinogen and what's not. It's been changing rapid fire throughout my adult life. But the whole concept of healthy, like if we're simply talking about the concept of being healthier, eating healthier, drinking healthier, being more active, all these things, that's smart conversations to have. But when the only stick being used is, well, I guess not the only one, but one of the big ones is a tax, then not sure it's going to get where people want it to be. Uh, Don, appreciate the time. Take good care of yourself. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, well, I try to stay half on time with the breaks here. Yeah, let's go ahead and take a break. We'll come back. Uh, Drones in the queue to talk about pensions. And Dan, my buddy Dan from Turnings, wants to talk about what's going on inside the walls of Her Majesty's Penitentiary. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. So the folks at Turnings, you know, one of the one of their mantras is they're trying to create a secure community. So dealing with the prisoners at HMP, and most importantly, upon their release, in an effort to decrease the numbers who may reoffend, the recidivism rate, and or the reintegration into the community. In all of our collective best interests, they do important work. One of the directors is Dan McGettigan. He joins us on line number one. Oh, wait a minute. Danny, you're on the air. Well, good morning. Hey, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay, sir. How about you? Good. I just thought I might call in, given the uh, controversy now about the justice system in general, I suppose, with particularly HMP right now. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm on leave now for a week or so for the past week. and uh, So I, I thought that I, I just might uh, want to... Uh, raise some awareness of a few issues, if you don't mind. Please, go right ahead. Well, uh, you know, obviously their situation is dire, you know. Uh, uh, The staff are short, short, they're short-staffed. And, uh, um, you know, the the situation is is serious in that, you know, uh, when you don't have enough people to do the work properly, you've got guys who are stressed to the max, talk about staff, and uh, some guys are probably calling in sick or whatever, whether legitimately or not, that's uh, another issue. And uh, you got offenders who are basically can't be uh, supervised outside because of a lack of people and uh, are not getting out of, of the units or out of the cells at times. And if, if they're the only, uh, you know, Solution is lock up. Well, that's going to lead, as you might well know, to uh, more serious problems. 
Well, even just the talk of it. So I would imagine inside the walls of the penitentiary today, if some of the inmates know that this is a possibility, whether they heard it or read it in the news or they just get a sense of it because of the lack of supervision all of a sudden, can't get outside for a bit of recreation, can't go to one of your programs, whether it be for mental health addictions or otherwise. So the talk gets through the penitentiary very, very quickly. And so, you know, whether or not we end up in full lockdown, the fact of the matter is even the thought of it just leads to the tensions. And just add to it. I don't know if anyone, you know, I've never been charged with a crime or spent any time in prison as a prisoner, but I've had the full warts and all tour of Her Majesty's Penitentiary. Once it was in the summer months on a hot day, it was absolutely sweltering. If you don't think that has an influence on behavior and mood and attitude in the building, whether it be staff or inmate, you're wrong. Well, you know, we, we go in the HMP as do other people uh, very often. I do a lot of one-on-one. And I work with the inmate committee specifically to discuss some of these issues. And uh, uh, a lot of the issues that they talk about are real, very real. You know, it's it's an anti-therapeutic situation in the first place for the people who are trying to do programming there. And uh, whether it's medical or whatever the case may be, they're doing things under, under dire situations. And the building is old, and we can blame the building. But there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of responsibility to go around here uh, over successive governments. I mean, uh, we know there's a new pain coming, hopefully, within four to five or six years. But in this situation now, with the building we have, things can change. Like in the United States, they put a cap on population and started reducing sentences, you know, for nonviolent people, you know. And in 10 years... According to the stats that I have in the U.S., they saved 644 million. You know, so like in Canada now, we've got close to 39,000 in our provincial and federal jails, right? You know, and that's that's very costly. And and uh, uh, maybe there's certain things we can do immediately. I'm not trying to say I'm the panacea or come up with solutions here because I do know the minister and. Other people are working hard to try to deal with this problem. I asked him to go to HMP there a month ago, which he did, and he met with the inmates, and I really appreciate it very much. You know, and the guys let it out and let, let them know what the situation is. But the first thing has to be looking at who can be released uh, nonviolent. Can they be supervised and looked after in the community? You know, uh, uh, right off the bat, you, you probably reduce your count, and they... I'm, it's always a stickler with me about intermittent sentences, people who do weekends. Now, I'm not encouraging, uh, you know, being soft on crime, but at the same time, if if people go to HMP for two nights and are free for five, well, you know, like the, that's causing more work for less staff at HMP on the weekends and causing a lot of other problems as well. That That's only one issue. But some of these things can be looked at and... Uh, so that people can do their programming. Eastern Health is trying to do their best to get in there and do what they can, I know, but there's a whole ramification of issues that has to be discussed in that area. And and uh, I'm saying reducing the count first, uh, not just letting people out. Obviously, there has to be like pre-release uh, situations. Uh, you know, uh, if mental health, I know they're doing their best or they can with mobile crisis, but maybe the police can diffuse a lot of more mental health situations with training 
and they're probably doing some, but do some more so that we don't have to have people going through the court system to go to jail. Well, dealing with some root cause issues is always a great place to uh, spend some of our time, our focus, and our money. Look, these always, I get the same reaction all the time, is that somehow we're promoting uh, soft on crime. That's not it at all. What no. we're trying to talk about is exactly what is the appropriate way to deal with individuals, whether it be in a drug diversion court, right? You know, so someone who has committed a nonviolent crime associated with drugs, let's get them some help with their problem with drugs. Thinking that we're going to throw them in the pen and all of a sudden they're going to come out free and clear of any problem with addictions and are never going to do anything bad again because they've had their wrist slapped. Real world data says that's not true. So why are we talking about it as if we're thinking if I put you in, lock you up and throw away the key is better for me? It's not better for you. If you want to do the math, the second most expensive thing in this, pro in this country, period, is a night in prison. So to keep people out of prison saves us money if that's what you're worried about and keeps us safer, which I think we're all worried about. And about 60% have addiction problems, and, and, and another high percentage of people have mental health issues, bipolar, ADHD. That should be uh, an analysis done there. Um, at, uh, at Turnings, Kevin Foley and myself have convened a committee with the help of Dr. Michael Clare and, and Dr. Uh, Rose Rigardelli and other people in, in, in various areas, whether it's in law or whatever the case may be, education, and we formed a committee, steering committee, to 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 try to inform uh, the public because people are coming from the community, and the community has to be more aware and more involved. Like it's, it's not just enough to blame one person or one group or one government. That's not the issue. The issue is that we're trying to do, hopefully within the next ten months and a year, to convene some kind of a convention to to bring bring before these very issues. Because, you know, all this started with the truth and sentencing, and God knows even before that, 10, 15, 30 years ago, when, when they wanted to lock everybody up and, and throw away the keys. Now we're reading from the results of that. And, and all we're, we're trying to do now is, is convene and get people involved here so that we can have major speakers come in and talk about this before the new building is built. I saw the designs. I saw the picture. It looks great. It's fantastic. But, you know, we have to try to deal with reality right now. We can't do it right now in the system. How are we going to transform it that, much, that quickly in the new building? And, you know, when you talk about HMP, Clarenville, I mean, women are going through probably the same, if not a worse, situation. And, and uh, there's so much work needs to be done, but so many people got to come to the table. You know, when you've got young people, it's about 38% of the guys at HMP don't have a high school education. So when young people leave education without, leave school without a, a diploma or are kicked out, ultimately they gravitate towards uh, uh, to, to crime. So like, there's a whole lot of people responsible here, not just one group. No, of course not. You're absolutely right. But as, as much as this is complicated, and it's emotional, because there are so many people that if you talk about doing things differently and better inside the prison system, whether it be in this province, men and women, regardless of what prison we're talking about, then I hear the same thing all the time. It's not supposed to be the Ritz-Carlton. Punishment is part of committing crimes. Yeah. It is. Yeah. But if we focus solely or intensely on nothing but punishment, guess what? We're going to end up punishing the same person over and over and over again. Is that what anybody really actually wants? Penny, you, you said it yourself, like the, the, the social issues, you know, poverty, uh, housing, lack of education, uh, 
stigma. Uh, people who can't get work or and gravitate back to the same communities they came from. So the community itself has an awesome responsibility. Maybe uh, businesses have an awesome responsibility, not just to deter people because they have a criminal record. You know, a lot of these people can contribute, want to contribute. I know I've talked to these guys one-on-one in jail, and I've talked to the guards as well. They want things to change. It's, it's not enough to blame people. They want things to change, and, you know, uh, surely uh, we're not going to be that soft on, on people who hurt people because no. to reduce victimization, we've got to deal with the perpetrators. That we do. Dan, I really appreciate making time for the show. Would you like to say anything else before I go off to the news? No, I just think you're doing a great job, and hopefully uh, more people will talk so that people will be more aware of the fact that, you know, as you know, when you're around, six hands got to be hauling water all the time, not just a few. Atta boy. Well said, Dan. All right, lad. See you Friday. All the best. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. That's Sam McGettigan, one of the directors at Turnings. They do important work. And look, I, I get it, and I put... I don't say put up. I get the same type of pushback feedback all the time when we talk about things like incarceration and what we should should not be doing, what we could or could not do. Let's just say the province has so many issues and everything costs money, and you're true. Uh, pardon me, you're right. That's absolutely true. It costs more to have someone in a shelter daily than it does to have affordable housing. It just does. The math is there. I mean, if anyone wants to send me emails about where I get this information, I'll, I'll draw up a bunch of uh, research studies and links, with, you know, just to give it some additional context. If you spent money to reduce the numbers of people who are on the street dealing with issues regarding mental health or addictions versus what it costs to have them incarcerated, even on remand or to Marshall's Penitentiary, the social harm reduction policies are, are less costly, more impactful than it is to simply put someone in jail. Not because I say so, because the numbers are clear. So cheaper to sh- it's cheaper in an affordable housing unit than it is in a shelter. Cheaper to try to deal with mental health and addictions issues prior to your engagement with the criminal justice system versus just throw you into prison. None of those things are even disputable. So sometimes when we talk about emotion and who's soft on crime, who's hard on crime, let's boil back to what works and what doesn't. And if we can pick the, uh, the side that actually works, then let's give that some more focus because the way we currently deal with the criminal justice system obviously is not working. So I don't know, and again, it doesn't matter what politician or party or part of the political spectrum you're on, things that don't work are things we should stop doing. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. All right, let's get an update from Jerome on two. Jerome, you're on the air. Oh, Patty, how are you today, Patty? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm trying to stick in here. Thanks for uh, all your help, by the way, up front. Uh, Patty, a little short update, I hope, uh, since I've been talking to you last. Uh, want, uh, I got a number from you, Pat. I passed it along to uh, MHA Mr. Tibbs. I guess it's MHA Mr. Tibbs, isn't it? Uh, yeah, out in, so he would be in Central anyway, yeah. yeah Grand Falls, yeah. Windsor, Buckins, I guess, I think, is it? Yeah, yeah I think so, Pat. Uh, who in turn passed it to uh, Cliff Small's office, Pat, and uh, they're currently working on that. Uh, I think they got another number somehow, And uh, but in last Thursday, I think it was, uh, Thursday or Friday, 
my update from them was uh, the people involved in the offices up there are currently out on a convention for all last week. So That doesn't help. Jerome, just before we go any further, just remind folks what your pension issue is so that they are filled in on our conversation. Absolutely, yeah. Patty uh, uh, paid a weekly pension with a certain amount from my check uh, every week for 30-something years. So if I got the opportunity to retire and uh, received it, this is I'm on my 22nd year, Pat, and uh, never had any problems up till last month and now 15 days of this month that I can't meet my obligations at the banker or otherwise food or anything. So uh, I guess that's my update, Pat. Uh, I'm hoping to hear something today, hopefully. Fingers crossed. I don't know what's going on, and the people that are trying to help me uh, up to this point don't have any information to go on. So uh, it's pretty tough, Patty. Uh, it always is. You know, when there's a hiccup in something that you're relying on, and something that should be there, and not frustrations about getting MHAs and MPs involved with something that you paid into, there's a structured pay plan. Uh, repayment plan and it doesn't work and it doesn't happen and of course there's a problem and we're happy to try to help out when we can Jerome so when you get an, uh, another update or if you have anything to share with us feel free to give us a shout yes Patty because uh, uh, not only difficult but uh, ruining uh, my credit you know uh-huh. Patty, uh, last month and now 15 days into this month and my obligations are just not being met through no fault of your own. So I I feel for you. I wish I could do more to turn this around immediately. But if you get an update from Mr. Tibbs' office or anybody else and you want to share it with me, whether it be privately, off-air, or on-air, just let me know. Absolutely, Patty, and thanks again for all your help. You're a great person. Happy to help, Jerome. Take good care of yourself. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, that's real nuisance, that one. Uh, let's go. That issue is what I'm talking about. Uh, line number five. Or Overton, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Morning Thanks for to taking you. my call. No problem. I wasn't going to call at first this morning. I was expecting and hoping that your uh, your show would be taken up with congratulations to that young baseball player, Jada Lee. Well, I'm, I'm happy to take calls on that. I'm thrilled for her, to be honest. Can you imagine 16 years of age and all the attention that she got from the media and other athletes and the Blue Jays? and the, It's just amazing. I think it's brilliant. Is that all she is, just 16? 16 years of age. And notably, on top of her athletic prowess, she's a full grade ahead in school. Apparently she's a really good student. Uh, So there's a lot of upside to Jada Lee. And to talk about her, you know, shining a bright light on good things that happen with young people or otherwise, I think it's good for all of us. It's good for the soul. I don't follow baseball anymore. I haven't followed baseball since uh, I used to watch the Expos at Jerry Park. That's not yesterday. That was a while ago. Yes, sir. Well, it's prior to 1976 when they built the Big O, so they stopped playing at Jerry Park, I think, the year before, or or 74. But Jerry Park, that was real baseball. (laughs) I mean, you were in a real park. But uh, this young girl, she deserves a lot of attention, and Patty, you give it to her. Yeah, why not? I tell you what, though. Between me and you and Overton... I get emails and response to VOCM just say uh, on Twitter today, are you following the, the Canada Summer Games? And people are just so crooked 
that like uh, people get mad at me for saying anything about any of these young athletes as if I should jump right into the doom and gloom every morning ASAP as opposed to a few good things happen, give people some accolades and applause. But people come after me, ah, oh, you're wasting our time, and you know, there's so many big issues. Yeah, there are big issues, but there's also these other issues that it can be part of a happy morning for even if it's five minutes. But I don't know why people get mad at me for saying things like, you know, Maggie Connors made Team Canada and Jada Lee's doing great and Chris Weeks with three medals and a record in the pool. Well, I, I, I appreciate those things because it gives me something to think about beyond tax on sugary drinks and whatever else. Yes, sir. And you, you give it. However, I, as I wasn't going to call about my sewage issue that I'm sure you're, uh, you anticipated, but to give you a little update, uh, and uh, I must say I'm sorry I didn't uh, I didn't get the waste, Montreal wastewater treatment stuff to you that I uh, that I promised. I had a look actually. I've been quite busy in St. Anthony, but picking up uh, picking my path through the the brown lumps and the green pipe discharge in order that comes from the house of the public health nurse in order to get my dinghy. There's been some good sailing days, and I've been out around on the water, and there's been lots of visiting sailboats and other vessels around. And I had to warn some kayakers about coming to shore near the green pipe. I've been quite busy. I've been handing out information sheets about the mess of sewage in front of my house, informing visitors, and I've never seen so many visitors in St. Anthony as I have this summer, of the illusion of St. Anthony as a tourist destination. I call it a three dressed up as a nine. They don't see the mess that I see every day. So anyway, as a result of my handing out this information, I got a visit from the RCMP. Oh, do tell. Days ago. Oh, yes. Uh, Mischief. Oh, I said. You have witnesses. We have witness statements. Uh, you know, this this is serious stuff you're talking here. So anyway, I invited him in the house, and we sat down and had a little chat. And off he went. Quite happy. Nothing about mischief. But I found out later, there's a little bit of scuttlebutt going around in the, around the town office and that, around the outside workers and everybody. But as I say, it's only scuttlebutt, not fact. My lack of response that I'm getting from the, my lack of response from the town and from these various government agencies that I've brought my complaint of this raw sewage from the uh, public health nurse's house next door is being directed from the office of the Minister of Municipal Affairs in St. John's. Anyway, uh, it isn't being directed by the town. Anyway, as I said, the police visit went quite well and I think that was an effort by the town to try to intimidate me a little bit so next day that would be Friday I went to town hall with a you know just like you uh, like you see with the Bristol board placards and a few information sheets to hand out sheets that I've typed up and added a few but my color printer is not working so unfortunately it's only black and white prints and within five minutes of being on the, on the steps of the town hall, police were there again. Now, I know that the police officer who came to visit me, who was the same chap that I had seen the day before, lives right across the street from me. He was at his house when I left. And yet, within five minutes of my arriving at the town hall, the town hall had called him and he had responded 
and was now at the town hall property. Quick as that. And the town had told him, he said, to have me removed from their property. So, as I said, he's a nice young man. So we had a little discussion, and I reminded him of what's called right to peaceful protests on public property. Town hall property is considered public property. I asked him to, maybe he should get further instructions from his commanding officers or somebody in the RCMP as to whether I, or whether or not I was doing anything wrong. He went on his phone. I watched him in his car. Oh, at least 10 minutes. He got out of his car. He came and wished me good luck and told me to stay exactly where I was. I was doing nothing wrong. But do you see where I'm going here? This is where the town is going. The, it's the minister is adamant that's not to have anything done about this sewer that's down in front of my house. And I might add, in front of her office, or behind her office. She doesn't want the town to cut off the street pavement just out in front of her office in order to make a service connection. Now, I'm sure you've seen service, you've seen the, the city of St. John's, and I've seen the city of Cornerbrook and numerous others. You can cut off a service, you can cut off a street in half a day and have it filled back in again. You have your connection made. You've seen it done all the time. Sure. If that cut was made into pavement here, there's a paving contractor scheduled here within a few weeks, and that cut could be paved over again. But no, that's not how it works. That's not how the minister wants it to work. Her plan is to have the town delay any decision, and she's also influencing the Department of Government Services. That's the people who oversee septic tanks and sewer installations who, and who give their approval for sewer installations to delay their decision until this paving contractor is gone. Then I might get a response and saying, well, it's too late now to do anything about it because the fall is coming and we can't cut the street. That's what I expect to hear. No doubt. And no when you from the public health nurses sewage discharge, unlawful sewage discharge, I should add. And that's the reason the government ministers, the reason they want to delay that, I found out when a, a, a few people came by and we chatted at my protest, I thought, well, I knew there was one green pipe with brown lumps, and I could see, just looking around my immediate neighborhood, three or four others. One chap I know came, he said, you think you got problems? He said, last year, he said, the town installed two more adjacent to my property that he described as his property, I should say, that he described as looking just like mine. Apparently, there are dozens, perhaps a hundred in the town. I, just yesterday, the tide was dead low, and I just happened to be uh, in the water, uh, on the water, I should say. Okay. And was passing a, what was once an outfall that I know 10 years ago, that we had a really big storm here, and it had damaged the outfall. The town's immediate emergency repair, which I thought was not unreasonable, 
was to break the outfall closer beyond where it had been damaged and allow and allow the escape. Ten years later, the outfall has still not been repaired to proper standards, and it is still discharging on the beach. And we're talking about raw sewage, just so people raw are aware. Sewage, it's not sir. you know brown lumps. What we're talking about is raw sewage. And uh, this was a proper outfall that was installed 50 years ago, and got damaged 10 years ago, and still has not been repaired. What I'm I'm just, uh, is that the sewage disposal problem and installations in St. Anthony today is 10 times worse than when I was watching the Expos play at Jerry Burke. And again, not yesterday. Things have changed and improved, not necessarily for the Expos, which of course are no longer a ball club, <laughs> but uh, in the world of baseball and the type of ballparks they play in, not so much St. Anthony and Raw Sewage. I appreciate the time. When you have an update, let us know. Yes, sir. Thanks, Overton. You take care, sir, and thanks so much. Pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in The Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Todd, you're on the air. Patty, good morning. How are you this morning? Very well. How about you? You're not getting worried about people getting mad with you, are you? No. No. Okay, good. That's the short answer. <laughs> Patty, I want to talk to you about this contract that was uh, let by the uh, provincial government uh, back uh, near the end of the previous Liberal administration to a company called Change Healthcare. Oh, yes, I remember I the story. Were, yeah. Yeah, I think they were originally a Winnipeg company, and then uh, all of a sudden they're now a U.S. company. This is what I know. I don't know if I'm 100% accurate. And there was uh, 3 or $4 million cash up front this contract that was not uh, uh, public tender. It was not uh, discussed or debated in the House of Assembly. I think the total amount is over $50 million, and it's over a period of five years. And it's all about making our healthcare system in Newfoundland and Labrador more efficient when it comes to scheduling surgeries and uh, appointments and all this sort of stuff, all software-based from what I can understand. I my question was it the uh, reason for the uh, for the for the big uh, computer hack there uh, a few months ago uh, but anyway uh, well i don't think so because the software has not been implemented as far as i i know uh, just a couple of things because i know you want to get the numbers on the table here it was all about operational costs staffing uh, sick time, uh, mistakes on the payroll, those types of things. That th that's what this software is intended to deal with. It yeah. is absolutely an American-based company. Their Canadian offices are in B.C., I'm pretty sure. The upfront cash was $3 million. The total value of the project in full could be as much as $35 million. Not 50 but as much as 35 But here's the interesting part of it for me. And, I, again, if someone thinks that I'm or knows that I'm wrong here, set me straight. If we do not implement... 95% of their recommendations inside that five-year window, we might have to pay them a penalty of upwards of $5 million. Okay, that's the reason for my call. Okay. Is that you're, you're correct. If 95% if of uh, their new programs and new, uh, uh, new software updates and, and the way of doing business, shall we say, is not 95% implemented uh, after the five years 
scheduled uh, implementation, there's a $5 million uh, penalty per healthcare board. Now, Which when the contract was lit, was there was four healthcare boards. Now there's only one. So my question is: that still five million dollars? Now that we only have one board, or is it twenty million dollars? I can't imagine it could be anything more than five million because the if we only have one health authority, it's not. I don't so look. I haven't seen the contract, so I'll try to be no. you know just realistic here. I can't imagine it could be any more than five because it, the math doesn't make sense to me. For instance, if it was five million per board, and I didn't remember that to be part of it, uh, because yeah. I I just thought it was in full because the scheduling software they would share it anyway. There wouldn't be a difference between how software is applied in uh, Labrador, Grenfell, Western, Central, or Eastern. So I'm imagining, and I'll confirm that it's still only five million. But you're right. When this okay. was signed, and I'm going to say it was in. February or March of 2021, the the big concern was not just the amount of monies and penalties and the lucrative nature of it. The unions, of course, were worried about job cuts because when we talk efficiencies and we talk about staffing and we talk about overtime and we talk about payroll, we're talking about jobs. So that's the potential outfall there. But I'll confirm the penalty phase at still remaining at five million. I I'm just thinking out loud that it probably does remain at that number, and I don't know if any of this has been implemented whatsoever, but it's a, a it's a conversation or a story I kind of forgot about. I'd like to I'd like to get a uh, I've been asking for a uh, I guess a, an update or a report card on the contract and see how we're doing. Now I mean I'm not going to get anybody on the phone that's going to reveal any inside information. But uh, Eastern Health said that it was on the go. I I call the other uh, three boards and they don't seem to know what I'm talking about. They've never heard of uh, anything. Uh, that's being implemented. I could be wrong, and they could be wrong. But uh, for that amount of money and that amount of penalty, uh, and if it's going to make such a great change to our system, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, we need improvements, obviously, it'd be nice to get a accurate, honest uh, update on this on this contract. Well, considering I kind of forgot about it, um, then that's probably on me to try to see where we are with it. I'll try to get that information. Ongoing work and whether or not it had anything to do with the cyber attack. I don't know. Like if, if they kind of feel like two different things to me, but I'm happy to get an update as to where we are. Is any of the software being tested or implemented, a beta test or what have you? I'll see what I can find out. But this is a good one to chase again. I appreciate you bringing it up. Okay. Sounds good. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Todd. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, so just numbers for context. It was. It's all about scheduling software. And it was indeed $3 million up front. The value of the contract over its entirety is $35 million. But the, the really interesting one, and as soon as you mentioned it, this is what popped in my head. If there's not a 95% adoption of the recommendations from Change Healthcare, as the name of the organization, then we owe them a penalty, $5 million. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary stuff. So uh, let me see here. I had something in front of me. Uh, yeah, it's called Change Healthcare believe is the entire name of the organization, but I'll get us an update here. ASAP, uh, will I take Mark here before the break, uh, Fonts? Or you want me to take the break? I'll take the call. Let's take the call. Let's go to line number one. Mark, you're on the air. Okay, uh, I want to talk about the polio and the water in the news. Okay. So I was wondering how we got there. Does anybody know? Well, they're testing wastewater, same way they test wastewater for, like, they, they've been doing testing like that right here in this province for the presence of uh, COVID-19 or the coronavirus. So the same thing that they're testing in New York City. Yep. Okay. Uh, and uh, I've seen on the, the, the putting out the vaccine, so they're already, eh? 
Well, vaccines for polio have been available since the 50s. Um, uh, the first one is on kids and uh, to my uh, kids to get a more in the boosters for the COVID too. No, it's got neither. There, neither one has anything to do with the other. Um, so the polio vaccine. They sort of, they sort of said that on CNN that the get the COVID video vaccines and that's for kids and uh, yeah, but that's cannot do with the polio vaccine. The polio vaccine has saved countless hundreds of thousands or millions of lives. It just has. I mean, this whole bit yeah. about vaccines is yeah. getting, gets on my nerves. The polio vaccine has been available since the fifties, and. The whole bit about hesitant, hesitancy associated with the vaccines has now meant that we've seen things pop up that we had total control over. Measles. Polio. Polio, the amount that they found in the wastewater in New York City suggests that it's being transmitted locally. So these might not be one-off and, and isolated incidents. So encouraging people to look at, consider, because uh, no one said that anyone has to do anything, but to consider maybe inoculating yourself against polio. I can't remember what probably the first uh, dose delivered sometime in the mid-50s, is probably a pretty good idea. Okay, uh, and uh, the, I seen on, on uh, the internet yesterday that the CDC has uh, said that COVID is over? No. It's uh, there, and just like that, it is over. No, that's not what it's they said. That's CDC. not what they said at all. Um, what the CDC did was to relax a bunch of guidelines because there was none of these things were mandated, the vast majority of what the CDC was talking about yesterday. So they talked about dropping guidelines, uh, not that anything is over. Yeah, but the dropping guidelines is no need stuff no more. And I got a friend of mine that got a got a email from the boat from the going on tour. On a cruise? On a cruise. Okay. And you got an email from the boat, from the cruise, uh -huh. saying that there's no God, no, nothing needed no more. Well, uh, you know, without being too uh, blunt, uh, I don't believe it, um, because the, the cruise industry is still pretty notorious at this point for how quickly anything spreads, whether it be from the norovirus or, and or COVID-19, and they're isolating people in the bellies of the boats, pretty much locked in your room if you tested positive. Uh, they logged, they were the first gang out there saying that you had to be fully vaccinated to travel on their ships, and now different cruise lines have different measures in place. But I don't think anybody has said everything is over. It's all in the rearview mirror. Forget about it. it. It's not a thing anymore because COVID numbers are still real. COVID numbers are, are present. What well, the prevalence are, we don't know. We don't test the way we used to. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Take it easy. You do. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, get a break in. When we come back, we'll talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let us go line number two and say good morning to the director at CNL. That's Ryan Clary. Ryan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. To you and your listeners, thank you very much for taking the call. Sir. Happy to do it. Patty, I'm calling about a couple of commercial fishery issues, um, um, two different issues, but I want to show how they're related and, and, and show how Newfoundland and Labrador has got to pick up its game in terms of the wild fisheries. So the first issue um, is foreign overfishing outside the 200-mile limit. 
So CNL issued a release last week, which the OCM uh, picked up over the uh, in, in its newscast this past weekend. And it had to do with a Faroese longliner that had been charged six times in the past year for serious violations related to misreporting catches. Six times in 11 months, Patty, for mm-hmm. violations related to fishing, halibut it was, outside 200 miles on the, on the tail of the Grand Banks. Most of the inspections were carried out by Canadian Enforcement and Conservation Officers uh, when the vessel tied up in Bay Roberts. It, un- it unloaded uh, halibut um, at the facility in Bay Roberts and, and went on its way. Each time the vessel each time the vessel landed, the halibut was allowed to return to the fishing grounds. The captain was not actually charged, Patty, and I believe that you know this. The captain was issued a notice of infringement, and the reason why he got this notice is because under the rules of NAFO, that's the Northwest Atlantic Fisheries Organization that looks after or oversees fishing, foreign fishing outside the 200-mile limit. Under NAFO rules, it's up to the home country of an accused vessel to follow through with an actual investigation and possible penalties. So it's a notice of infringement. Now, that's a fundamental problem of NAFO, Patty. It it is. And, of course, I I think the name of the vessel was the Bordiarns, if I heard the story properly. Yeah, I didn't know how to pronounce it properly yet. Uh, Okay, so, look, we know that NAFO has long been a pretty toothless organization. And, yes, it's incumbent upon the country that was, uh, in this case, Canada, to do more about it. But I think you started off the commentary this morning by saying Newfoundland and Labrador has to pick up its game. How does the province pick up its game in a on a national issue, international issue, when dealing with NAFO. Just curious your thoughts on the matter. By demanding more from Canada, NAFO does not work. Notices of infringement, six in the past year, and the vessel allowed to return fishing on its merry way is ridiculous. Every time there's an infringement, I point it out. Uh, And then the infringement goes to the home country, the vessel in question. They do an investigation. If there is an investigation, they give out penalties. If they are penalties... And it's there's one set of rules for inside the 200 mile limit. If you break a fishery rules, you're you're taken to court, you're brought in in into port. You've got the the book thrown at you in terms of the full extent of the law outside the 200 mile limit. It's a free for all. That has not changed. We talk about this year after year after year because nothing is done. The government of Newfoundland, to answer your question, Patty, could put pressure on Ottawa to actually do something about this, but it does not. The second issue I want to report is that um, last year, when this particular Faroese vessel was charged, the captain contacted me. The captain contacted me to say that, um, well, he explained himself in terms of the violations of the notices of infringement against him. But he contacted me to say that the real, the real issue at the time, still ongoing, is the fact that you've got foreign factory freezer trawlers directing for more torm species outside the torm. 200 mile limit like cod and other illegal fishing activities and what this captain was told me was that all of this is happening under dfo's notes mm-hmm. so dfo's hands are apparently tied because when they go to inspect to board a foreign factory freezer trawler the captain says there's COVID aboard and then the inspection and the boarding doesn't happen so to make a long story short what i did patty on behalf of cnl uh is we filed a formal access to information request with the government of Canada, with DFO, to find out how many successful or unsuccessful boardings and inspections of foreign trawlers outside the 200-mile limit took place between March 2020, when the pandemic began, and this past April. We wanted to see how many boardings or, or inspections were actually taking place. Was, was there any merit to what uh, the allegations of this foreign trawler skipper? And 
what we got back should also be concerning to all your listeners, Patty, because DFO denied the request. They wouldn't say how many boardings took place or didn't take place. And what they used was a section under the Act, under the Access to Information Act, that states that information may be withheld if its release may be injurious to international relations. So these relations that the government of Canada has with countries like the Faroe Islands or the Spanish or the Portuguese, they take precedence over the relations with provinces like Newfoundland and Labrador, whose inshore fishery is directly impacted by this continued uh, 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 raping of our resources outside the 200-mile limit. Now, you mentioned Spanish. Uh, we had that Captain Canada moment on the wharf in St. John's years back, which, of course, was the epitome of a photo op. Um, anyway, on top of for overfishing, and sometimes this gets kind of lost in the fishing shuffle, is we'll talk about inshore versus offshore, adjacency, which is not enshrined in legislation. If we even had, let's just pick a, a, a number. If we had 10% additional quota of the various species compared to the quota afforded to foreign fleets, a lot of the conversations we have here annually would go away. You pick one, turbot, right? If we had an, another 10% of what is the foreign allocation of turbot in and outside 200 miles, uh, tips of the ground bank, uh, the ground bank, we would not even be worried about some of the other issues that dominate the conversation. People don't realize it because we think it's inshore versus offshore. We don't incorporate the concept of foreign overfishing and or releasing bilge water at sea and or other violations which have been ongoing, omnipresent for decades. Nothing happens. And if if anything happens, it's so very little that captains don't care about their notices of infringement. They throw those in the water. So, some good points, Patty, but, but this is not about Canada taking control of the continental shelf. No, no, I didn't say it was. For Newfoundland and Labrador, I'm, you know, I know, I'm just making this clear because I, I took it that way. Uh, it's not about more fish for Canada or for Newfoundland and Labrador. It's about one enforcement and conservation regime for the entire continental shelf. Canada is different from other countries in that most countries, the continental shelf is inside their 200-mile limit. Ours goes outside, which is when the fish become vulnerable to foreign fleets. So it's about one enforcement regime in which there's one set of rules. If you break a fishery law, you face a certain penalty or, or, or jail time or whatever it is inside the 200-mile limit or outside the 200-mile limit. That's what this is about. Uh, you know, there's a conference in St. John's this week, Patty. Um, not sure if your newscast has covered this. It's about aquaculture. It's a world aquaculture conference. Yeah, but, you know, NAFO, which, again, oversees fishing outside the 200-mile limit and impacts the decisions of NAFO impact Newfoundland and Labrador as and, and Eastern Canada as the adjacent state, more, but more so Newfoundland and Labrador than, than anywhere else. NAFO does not hold meetings in Newfoundland and Labrador because, it, from my perspective and the perspective of a lot of other industry watchers, it wants to go under the radar with its decisions. If there's one conference that we should have in Newfoundland and Labrador to, to, to direct attention at what's working and what's not working, it's NAFO. Yeah, they're happy enough in Barcelona. Um, I added the percentage of quota just as an additional layer to foreign fishing conversation, not that we're talking about enforcement and what could or should not happen and people going to prison and, and vessels confiscated. It was just another point that came into my mind. Uh, anything else you'd like to add to it this morning, Ryan? Yes, Patty. You mentioned uh, something last week that uh, CNL, had written up, uh, CNL had written up, and it was about Nova Scotia seems to be lead, leading the way in Canada's seafood sector. And there were a couple of points that CNL br brought up. Number one, the Halifax Airport has a brand-new $36 million cargo uh, park 
to ship seafood uh, all over the world. It's a, it's a coal storage facility, lobster holding facility, $36 million. They can send uh, lobster to China in 17 hours. On top of that, uh, Dartmouth, and, and you mentioned this on your show, they've, they've got $20 million for a new secondary processing seafood packaging plant in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. So between that airport facility, uh, between that new secondary processing uh, facility, which will process uh, fish from Newfoundland and Labrador, Newfoundland and Labrador is definitely falling behind provinces like Nova Scotia in terms of seafood. And this is where the province has got to wake up. It's not just about aquaculture and the, that, that other provinces like British uh, the government of Canada is actually cutting out at sea aquaculture on the West Coast. And here in Newfoundland and Labrador, we're having a World Seafood Conference on at sea aquaculture. Yeah. It makes no sense, Patty. Yeah, the, the money's at the airport. I think there's uh, co funding in place. The Dartmouth plant, I think, is private monies, but uh, that's neither here nor there. We're talking about. Well, there's millions of government money for Dartmouth, too. Well, I, I tried to find it. I couldn't find anything on it. But if you can send it over, I'd appreciate it. Atlantic Fisheries Fund, yeah. The money that was supposed to go to Newfoundland and Labrador for compensation for giving up minimum process requirements as part of that Canada-EU free trade deal. Seated, that yeah. money, instead of going to Newfoundland and Labrador, goes to all Eastern Canada, which is also ridiculous too, but don't get me started. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Patty. Take care, Ryan. Bye-bye. Yeah, I tried to find uh, any government monies into the Dartmouth facility, and I could not, but if it's out of the Atlantic Fisheries Fund, just for a reminder, uh, it was then Premier Dunderdale. They had the big announcement down at the Rooms about the creation of the Atlantic Fisheries Fund. It was 120 or $130 million from us and 270 or $280 million from the federal government, making up a $400 million pot, all to be spent on projects in Newfoundland and Labrador. Of course, it never came to pass. Some of the nonsense that went on there was we didn't go far enough to prove what was the value of doing away with the minimum processing requirements. Part of that is our own fault because there was exemptions offered on uh, NPRs all the time. So they kind of went away. The fund kind of went away. It was reimagined and reannounced as $400 million once again. But it wasn't just for this province. It's for all four Atlantic provinces. Kind of waters down the 400 mil. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Linda's in the queue. We appreciate her patience. Then we're speaking with you. Do not go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Linda. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Yeah. Well, could be a little bit better. I just wanted to ask if I could um, inform your li listeners on uh, something that uh, we have a visitor here from Ontario, and she's leaving on Wednesday. And so uh, shortly after she got here, of course, she wanted to go downtown to Water Street and do some shopping. And unfortunately, um, if, if, you, if I can, can I explain um, our travels so I can explain to you what happened and what we lost? No, not a chance, Linda. Not interested. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Go well, right what go right was, Okay, thanks. What we, uh, what we did was on August the 10th, which was last Wednesday, uh, we had to go to Carl's Funeral Home, and uh, that was our first stop, and then we left there. And then we went down and we parked on Duckford Street. That's near Bates Hill there. So we went down, uh, through, um, down through George Street to Bates Hill, and then that brought us out to Water Street. And when we crossed, we went into Natural Boutique. 
So that's the extent of our travels as to where we went. When we were finished at Natural Boutique, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> we came out and just walked up the street to go to another place. And moments after we left that store, she said, oh, my God, I've lost my bracelet. So we went and checked the store inside out <clears throat> a couple of times, and so did the lady that worked there. And we came home, and we thought it was here. We, we checked everywhere anyway. So all of us have been feeling pretty distraught, more so her than anybody, because what she lost was a beautiful leather bracelet with seven, um, seven like beads of real birthstones and they're for her upper grandchildren and so it, though it's all it's expensive it's the more the sentimental value because she can't get it back and we can't find it and the store which she had it made is no longer in business so i guess what i'm saying is that um she's leaving on wednesday and i'm just hoping that maybe somebody downtown in the area since last Wednesday, may have picked this up on the street, not knowing who it belongs to, and if they have it, if they knew, they could give it back. So this is a way for me to say, well, we're missing one, <laughs> and if somebody does have it, they can reach out to us. Absolutely. Well, you know, somebody has it. Someone picked it up. So it's a leather bracelet with the seven gemstones related to her grandchildren's birthday months. So, yes, yeah. please, let's get it back into the hands of our visitor from Ontario. It would be great if she went back and said, there's oh, good, honest people there. I lost my bracelet. Yeah. got it back the same yeah. day that Linda, my friend, called the show. Okay, so what do you want to do? You want them to call you directly? Yes, that would be great. Okay. What's your number? Okay, my number is 749-9609. But in case you don't get me on that line, you can get me at 749-1607. Okay, I have Linda's numbers here, 749-9609 or 749-1607. So if you heard yeah. one of your pals talking about the fact they found a, uh, a bracelet downtown, let's get that back to the lady. Of course, beyond whatever yeah. it might be worth, it's seven gemstones related to her seven grandchildren. So let's do it. Linda, I appreciate this. Yeah. Good luck. Let me know. Right, and thank you in advance to the Good Samaritan because I really got faith, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure someone will call. Fingers crossed. Yeah, thank you, Patty, ever so much. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, let's get that back to her. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, checking on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite when you join us live on the air. Look, if I didn't bring it up and it's a subject that's near and dear to your heart, you'd like to comment on something you've already heard, give us a call. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, one 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is Open Line on VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. Just a quick uh, note that may be of interest to you. So we know that some of the place names, there was conversations about changing the name, you know, Beathic Lake and what have you. There was also some conversation and activity on Engage NL, the website. And the survey was about changing the name of the Colonial Building. 69% of respondents say they prefer the name Colonial Building, and the government has decided that the Colonial Building will remain the name of the Colonial Building. 
Let us go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay South. That's Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. Patty, I'm calling uh, in to discuss uh, I suppose, further on a release I put out last week actually on the turnover road being paid by a private contractor. And uh, I guess first off, I mean, we were we lobbied for this road to be paved, and all myself and the uh, area MHA, Parrot, Lloyd Parrot, which is, you know, it's good to see it's done, but the way it was done is just astounding. And astounding to anyone I've spoken to is that, you know, private, after much lobbying and much, much whatever, and the department kept not responding and wouldn't tell you when it was being done, if it was being done or what have you, and then until a private contractor takes it on themselves to pay the section road to get to their quarry. And, you know, and the minister comes out with a nonchalant response, to, like commending them for the work, and, you know, it was great to see it done, and they got a permit. I mean, I mean, I know enough about it. There's no permit to pave a road. It's a tender. It's a tender call to pave a road, and you can pay for it with all kinds of stipulations and and insurances and liabilities that come with that, and, and it's got to be up to scratch. The only, you know, permits are for smaller, smaller projects, obviously, putting the culvert in, for instance. But I think, Patty, I just want to bring light. I mean, I've been very outspoken over the years, and probably you've heard me speak about this before, about our roads plan and lack of a roads plan and, uh, I suppose, transparency to a roads plan that, uh, you know, this government come in. They were bringing in a roads plan that was going to take the public set of paving. And, I mean, I was never opposed to that. I've not record many times stating that. I, what I wanted to see was a, a score for all of the roads, as many roads as possible anyway, that people could see where the road was through down the road. And we never used to get that. We'd only get the score and get the road when the list was put up each year. And that brought, well, I question then, was the politics really at a paving? But this situation out there, I mean, this is, this is astounding. I mean, I've talked to enough people in the industry to say the same thing. They've never heard tell of it. It's unprecedented. And you got a minister and the government that just seems like they don't really care. So I'm like, you know, I want to do to here, you know? So it's a, it's something that's worth talking about. It's worth bringing up. It's worth questioning. I think government needs to get better answers than what you're given. Forgive me for, uh, I don't know, for this question. What's the exact point you're getting at here? Because if someone paid for something versus I helped pay for something, what exactly is the downside? Are you talking about just the transparency on that couple of clicks for the road, or is it a bigger conversation about five-year plan and scoring of various roads? Look, what exactly is the point you're getting at with that two-kilometer stretch? Well, Patty, it's a provincial road, first off, and it's the responsibility of the province. So, I mean, we're going to have our provincial roads paved at will by contractors because they get frustrated waiting for the government to do something about it. They got the ability, the capability, and the manpower to do these roads. I just think that's a sad state, a sad state of affairs that that's the way, that's the way our roads program is going to be done. And the reason I throw the road scoring, the roads program into the, into the mix is there's no... I mean, this 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 program has been in my mind it's been shambles for years, and I've kept and I keep saying and I keep repeating that, and I'm regularly repeating that. And this is a prime example. You got I mean, you got a contractor just going out on their own and paving the road. So I mean, are there liabilities? We don't know. Who's responsible? Is it done up to scratch? I mean, you know. So you know, I mean, as you know, road work is the black gold of the province, and right across the country, I suppose you get people cry for roads to be repaired. So I mean, kudos to the person to the contractor for for paving the road. But, I mean, is this the way our program, is this the way it's going to be done? Is this just a new way of doing roads? I mean, I can't see it. I mean, I can't see many contracts willing to take it in their own pocket. But I think it draws the bigger question. How are we How are we actually locking out our road work? And, and how is this department responding to the concerns of people that people are taking on their own? I mean, this was done out of frustration. This wasn't done out of goodwill. I think it was done out of total frustration trying to get their own other jobs done. They couldn't get to the quarry. It was, wasn't fit for a dump truck to drive over. So I can't imagine what it was like for a passenger car to go in over. So, you know, for them to take that measure, I thought it was quite 
uh, alarm me and alarm not only me, it'll tell you, alarm a lot of other people. Yeah, I was just probing to see exactly what you're getting at. Look, it's never ideal, and I don't think it bodes well for private business that they might have to go into their own pocket to pave or repair a provincial road. Uh, I thought it was a little bit of an odd response from the department itself, you know, celebrating it or applauding the fact, when in fact that's kind of missing the point. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a strange one. The whole scoring system is, look... I do think there's been some wise things done regarding roads. A five-year plan, albeit the government, whoever is holding power, is always going to need some wiggle room to deal with things that pop up, whether it be a road gets washed out or whatever the case may be. Five-year plan makes sense. See the scoring also makes all the sense in the world because we're not just talking about beating up your rims or some of these issues are straight-up safety-related matters. Early tender has been a good idea because sometimes in years past we waited so long to get the tenders out that bulk of the roadwork season came and went and companies didn't have a chance to staff up and crew up getting ready to do whatever contracts they won. So a few good things have happened, but the politics of, of asphalt and some of the questions that you pose, I don't even know where the downside is for government, to be honest. I've always scratched my head at this. Look, if you have the majority of the members of the House of Assembly, uh, in this case liberals, then there's probably going to be some more liberal districts get some payment. But if we don't see the scores, then we're always going to think, I have to vote for the government if I want my road paved. And it should never be that way because it makes no sense. So seeing the score probably works for everybody, including the government. I don't know why they won't do it. No, and I've been I've been dumbfounded by that one as well. And Petty, uh, I mean, as, as for the five-year roads program, as you probably I don't know if you're aware, of, they they discontinued that this year. Oh, I know, and, I know it's went away. Yeah. I said it was a good thing when they had it on oh, the go. Yeah. But the replacement is this two-year roads program that they came out late in June with, at much to the chagrin of everyone involved. I mean, contractors and the industry were all up, were up in arms waiting for it, and half of that was was carryovers. So my opinion is, is already, I mean, I, I agree with five-year road program, and let's say it again, but I mean, if you're, like, if you're doing what you're doing, it's just well to throw it all out and just do it as at, at, at willy-nilly as whatever they want to do because I think it's more frustrating when you're being told something you know is not accurate. I think I'd rather just, like, say we're going to do it our way and liberal districts will get the majority and this will we'll decide upon it and premiers also figure it out. Well, you know, if that's what you're going to do, tell the people and we'll move on. Because right now, telling you one thing and doing another is not, it frustrates me and I know it frustrates a lot of other people as well. Absolutely. I appreciate the time this morning, Barry. Okay, Patty. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Barry Petney. the PC member for Conception Bay South. Before we get to the break, let's go to line two. Eleanor, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Okay. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, too. It's Monday, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Monday here for us at Manuals River is a big day because we have our mapping Monday program that we offer to the public every Monday afternoon uh, now from May until October, and it's a free program, so anybody is welcome to come and join us today between 3 and 4.30 to check out our big giant floor map of Newfoundland and Labrador, and this is a map that was given to us by uh Canadian Geographic in coordination with uh, the geography department at MUN, and it is huge. It's probably the biggest map I've ever seen. It's 8 meters by 11 meters. takes up the whole floor in our reception hall, and we invite you to come and 
take your shoes off and go for a stroll on the big map and you can find all different kinds of uh, interesting features of land and water. We're going to have lots of games and scavenger hunts available for people to check out and it's a great way to get to know the province whether you're from here or whether you're visiting here. Uh, offered um, you know, for free to the public uh, as part of our Come Home Year funding that we received this year which is a great way to celebrate and to welcome everybody home. Uh, even if you're a come from away here, you're welcome home here. So I suggest everyone come on out and, and check it out. It's really a lot more fun than you can even imagine until you actually get to do it. And, you know, uh, it's such a great way to connect to other people and learn a little bit about where they're from and what are the special places to them. So just paint me a picture of what the map actually does. Will I be pressing a button getting the details about something or is it all written in text or what? how does it actually work? It's a big, giant map, and it actually has Newfoundland and Labrador situated sort of in the middle, and it also uh, shows lots of different features. So it shows where the wreck of the Titanic is. It shows the Grand Banks and other different protected areas and stuff uh, on land and water. It talks about the indigenous lands, and you will get yourself a real live interpreter that will be there oh. uh, today uh, talking to you. And, you know, just as we do with our, our regular exhibit space, we have a standard tour that we would give of our exhibits, but we're going to be tailoring that to any group that comes in. So depending on the number of people that come and the age range and the interest levels, we have lots of uh, trinkets and doodads and, and different uh, tricks up our sleeve to keep everybody entertained and so that everyone can learn something regardless of where they're at with it and if they're familiar or not. So it's, it's really a lot of fun and, uh, you know, it's not just for the kids, the adults. We have, when we do school programs, sometimes the adults are a little more tentative to take off their shoes and be a bit silly, but we have quite a lot of fun when we get them going and usually just about everybody will, will go ahead and, and participate with us. So, What does it cost to go? It's absolutely free. Love it. So it's, no, cost nothing at all uh, until October, every Monday. And it's something that we also offer, uh, you know, internally to our um, our science campers that are here with us. And incidentally, today just also happens to be the last day for summer camp registration. Uh, so we have uh, one week of camp after this week. So today is the last day online. If anyone has a young person that might be finished grade three to finish grade five, there are just a couple of spaces left uh, in our week-long camp next week, and we're doing lots of things like experiments and crafts and hikes and reading stories and playing games and spending lots of time outside. We've got special visitors coming to camps like the Ocean Science Center and the Conservation Corps green team comes in to do a little presentation. So there's lots of, of variation, really good experience for anyone who has an interest in science or just likes to, the outdoors and likes to have a lot of fun. So that's another thing that's sort of happening here today. And as we are facing the last part of August, we're trying to squeeze the, the last little a bit of joy out of summer and enjoy the weather on the trails. We see lots of people out when the weather is good today. Another reminder that those tra trails that everyone likes to walk are also free um, to the public. And we would very much like to keep it that way and to be able to support uh, our community and to maintain those trails and, and further develop new trails uh, that will be, you know, wheelchair accessible. Uh, so the way to do that is because we're a registered charity and a not-for-profit organization to, you know, have everyone join in and help out. So if you've used the trails before and you believe that they are a valuable resource to the community and if you've never been on the trails and you'd like to come and check them out, they are fantastic. They go all the way down to the ocean now on one side and our hope someday is to be able to connect 
to the ocean on the opposite side and maybe even someday to have a bridge that will loop right across because people do tend to love to walk in a loop for whatever reason, Patty. I don't know why, but they don't want to go back the same way they came down. And so the way to, to make that dream a reality would be for everyone to come and join us. And you can do that by volunteering or by, uh, you know, donating if you if you have the, the means. And even if you'd like to support us with one of the biggest fundraisers that we have throughout the year, and that is our um, Bobber Race. And it's a 50-50 online lottery this year. It was a in-person race for almost 30 years, I think 29 years of in-person little tiny bobbers being released down the river. And as of COVID-19, 2020, we ended up um, switching to an online lottery instead. So if you go to our website, which is manualsriver.ca, or if you go to bobberrace5050.com, you can find out how to purchase a ticket or a couple of tickets if you like. And there are, uh, you know, the more you buy, uh, the bigger your chances to win will be. And the individual price of the ticket goes down the more you bundle. So it's one ticket for 25, three tickets for 60, five tickets for 75, or 10 tickets for $100. And, uh, you know, if you don't have internet access, if you're not a website savvy type of person, uh, that's quite all right because we can also sell you the tickets over the phone if you'd like to increase your chances to win. So we have a local number that's 834-2099 or we even have a toll-free number because these tickets are only available to people uh, who have a mailing address in our province and there's only 20,000 tickets uh, that will be sold. So the race will be to try and get them before they're gone. So that toll-free number if you are outside of the local area is one. 888-747-8211. And we would love to see our total climb. It's already up over $40,000, and we already uh, awarded an early bird prize of $5,000 to a lucky winner, Brittany Piercy, who I think is going to take that money to do some home renos, it sounds like. So we'd love to see it climb up. It was up over $100,000 uh, last year and the year before, so we expect it will climb now in the last few weeks, and we're putting a real big push on to, um, to get everybody to, to jump on the bandwagon and, and buy a ticket and, and join in with us. Sounds good. Appreciate the information as usual, Elnor. Thanks a lot. No problem. And, Patty, I, I just wanted to mention uh, a big thank you to you for, you know, having us uh, being able to come in and, and call. I was at a wedding on Friday night, and I met a lady who said, you know, I heard you on open line the other day, and I immediately went to the website and bought a ticket right away. So we wouldn't be able to do this without your support. We really helped. Uh, you know, really, really appreciate that, and we hope everyone will go ahead and do just that today. Let's see what they do, and hopefully, they do exactly what that lady at the wedding did. Thanks for this, Eleanor. Appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go where? Line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Me? You. Okay. Uh, I would just like to make a very strong plug for the people who have come in from other countries to with medical qualifications and want to work here and help us with our medical situation. And I realize they can't immediately jump in. They have to be qualified, have our, their qualifications match ours. But I'm sure there are places that they can fit into the whole system. And I understand that there are still, from, 
what I hear from people from the Ukraine and elsewhere, there's still a lot of red tape that they are, think is unnecessary. And I would really like to encourage the people in charge of that red tape in this province to see as soon as possible to get it cut as soon as possible so that the people who need medical help in whatever way can get it as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we all share uh, similar thoughts on this one. And someone has pushed back to say, why, we're just going to lower the standards so that anybody can work on health care? No, it's not no. that. It's ensuring that they're up to standard. But the problem becomes it just takes so long to have access to the, uh, to the exams required. It costs a lot of money. If we are all in need, and this is right across the country where they're dealing with this exact same issue, not necessarily just by Ukrainians, but newcomers to the country, yes, yes. is if we could just do it quicker. The only thing that's going to have a natural progression that we can't necessarily influence with changing government policy is language barriers. So they'll have to, as quick as they can, be able to learn English Mm -hmm. to the point where they can pragmatically apply their training and their accreditation to the patient. But we just have an issue with how long things take. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lack of national standards here, too, uh, which I think is part of the conversation. There's a different standard required to be a registered physician in Ontario versus yeah. Manitoba versus here versus yeah. British Columbia. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of things that we can streamline to make the world the, the life easier here for healthcare professionals and uh, healthcare users like me, like you. So I think that your comment is uh, probably in the vast majority. Let's see how quickly we can get it done so that they can be a contributor like they want to be. I'd like to. I'd, I'm not sure whether they have to take the same exams for all levels or all things in the medical system. For example, somebody who comes in who wants to be a nurse, would they have to take the same exams as somebody who's a, a doctor? No, or, is the short answer. Yeah, so that should be a factor in all of this too. That the the appropriate exams should be available as soon as possible and marked as soon as possible, and that people there are many uh, who could come in and. And even though they're qualified at home as a doctor, they could certainly help in some aspect of the medical system to help speed things along for people who need that, I think. Yeah, and some of that might be up to the individual, whether or not a a trained MD would be willing to play the role of what, I'll just pick a profession, I'm not going to try to say one because it'll only cause me trouble. But I, I get what you're saying. I think, now, there was a caller last week spoke about what uh, Health Minister Tom Osborne had to say on this show about that very issue and said it's not quite as uh, it's not quite as positive as the minister painted it to be. So we actually have some time coming up with one of these Ukrainians who's a female, actually, uh, mm-hmm. was a doctor trained in her home country. Mm-hmm. She's going to come on and give us a first-hand perspective and account of exactly what's happening, where it can be better, and what she's facing. So hopefully that will be helpful for all of us. I think that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I'm trying to think of different things that they could come in and do. Not the, the, the person who helps with it, not in emergency, but the, the person who helps in situations who need some medical assistance. What are they called? I forget. Um, Say that part again. The people who help in medical situations where there's help needed. It's not uh, the emergency. It's somebody who's out on the scene who can help. Uh, who is trained to help in quick situations. You mean like paramedics? Yes. Oh, they would have their own professional accreditation required as well, so I don't know where that fits in. But it would be nice, and I'm looking forward to speaking with that particular lady because it's one thing for the minister to tell us, it's one thing for me to guess, it's another thing for me to suggest, but she can tell us exactly what's happening. Well, I'm aware of some people who are also trained as physiotherapists, and they're trained as as, uh, the guy, the, the position you just said, 
what do you call it? The not medevac, the um, the paramedic. Paramedic, yeah, mm-hmm. who are trained in that area too. So there are there are people available who we need, and so I think that visit from that person should help a lot. And thank you for your time. Appreciate yours. Bye. Take good care. Bye bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you. Don't go away. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Okay, line number three. Elaine, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Petty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. I wanted to tell you a little story about something that's happening in the clinic on Belle Island. I can't call it a hospital anymore. It's just a clinic. I have two sisters who had bad coughs. They went to the hospital yesterday to be tested. And uh, I can't call her a lady. And I can't call her what I want to on open line. But she said they cannot get tested there at the hospital. And she said, you shouldn't be here with that cough. They said, a relative of ours got tested last week, and she called him just about, called him a liar. Well, anyway, they asked to be tested. She said, you cannot get tested here. And if that's your sister behind you, you can take this wipe and tell her to wipe whatever she touched when she came into the hospital and she pushed her chair back that she almost went through the wall so if you can't get tested at a clinic where can you go so they asked her that she said i don't know so anyway they were getting mad and they were sick so anyway they talked and they argued and she will would not let them see a doctor so that was okay they went home and they knew the change would be from the nurses at 7.30, 8 o'clock. So they went back again and met a beautiful nurse that helped them and couldn't believe the story that they told her about the one before. So was and it just got, that they had better bedside manner, or it was the same, it was the same uh, outcome, but it was offered in a different fashion? So did they all of a sudden able to get a test at the clinic, or was someone yes. who was just more pleasant? Well, when they went back at 8 o'clock, they got tested. Okay. <laughs> and, and the nurse couldn't believe what they were told. So I think this one that was on earlier should go home, sit in her walk, rocking chair, and knit some socks for someone who is in need. Because she is terrible, and there's been so many complaints about that. I won't call her a lady. She's not a lady to me. But anyway, they got tested. They didn't have COVID. They had seen the doctor before they left and uh, had medicine. There's just a virus they have. But she, I got to call her an idiot. That's what she is. She's an idiot. And how many more did she turn away from that clinic that probably did have COVID? I don't know. But let me just throw this in there for the purpose of conversation only. So not a lady, idiot. She might be exactly that. I wonder how this factors in. 
And I'm not making excuses for anyone because in the healthcare setting, you need to take a deep breath and to act appropriately, regardless if it's your 18th or 23rd hour on shift. But sometimes I bet you that's the root cause of some of these things. Is someone is just so stressed and burnt to the max that something that they said then is something they never would have said five years ago. But now we've just got people who are at the end of the rope. Do you think that plays a role or do you just think that you encountered an idiot who is that all day, all day every day? That's all day, every day oh, with wow. that person. <laughs> oh, all day, every day of the week. Okay. And she should not be working what she's doing. No way. She should be allowed inside the door. There's been so many complaints about that person. She should not be there. I think she's a retired nurse. Oh, yeah. Well. But <laughs> no way. No, she's stressed. She's stressed all the time. Yeah, and, and there's just she's no need. Look, I, and again, look, I tried to preface it by saying I'm not making excuses. I just think no. we find ourselves at a spot where someone may indeed just be at the absolute, 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 pardon me, literal end of the rope and blurted out something they wouldn't uh, necessarily in the past. But maybe, just maybe, if the absolute uh, lack of bedside, appropriate bedside manner is absent, then that's a different issue altogether. And if someone's behaving like that, especially in healthcare, where you're talking about folks who are already scared, already worried, and now all of a sudden they got to put up with that? Yeah. No need of it. No, no need of it at all. They were sick, and they needed to be seen by a doctor, and they did. And there's, a, it's not COVID, it's the virus they have, right? But okay. an idiot like that, giving them a wet, uh, I don't know, cloth or something, told them to wipe whatever they touched when they came in. And she wouldn't even touch their card. She just pushed it to them like that. And so my sisters didn't say anything. They went out. They just called her an idiot behind her, you know. Yeah. But I, I ran into that person a few years ago, and she wasn't very nice. So there was no COVID then, I'm sure. Understood. Yep. But I think she should uh, go home, sit in her rocking chair, and knit all day long. Well, because only the yarn can get mad at her at that point. Yeah. Appreciate okay. the time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and again, this is not an effort to make an excuse for anybody. And if you don't and you're unable to summon up the required compassionate bedside manner when dealing with people who have a built-in level of worry, if they're engaged in healthcare, there's something going on. And treating them properly is a big part of it. Just imagine, so if I get one person, man or woman, who treats me how I think I need to be treated when I am scared and worried, and what that does to alleviate my frustration and worry and anxiety, versus encounter someone who acts completely outside the norms and unacceptably, then obviously every, any bit of my stress level is now shot back up through the roof based on that and that alone. Ugh. Let's go, line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Morning, Hi. caller. Hi, Patty. Hiya. Okay. Hi. Uh, Patty, I'm calling about the traffic here on the St. Thomas line. Right. It is, I just said to France, there's no word for it. It's so bad. Uh, people are walking their, their babies, their youngsters, whatever, their young kids on their bikes. Uh, people walking their pets. Us here, we're pretty close to the road. Uh, we're afraid the car or vehicle's going to come into the house. It's, it's, I've called RNC, they refer me to the RNC, uh, RCMP, I call the RCMP, they refer me back to RNC. It's right way. 
So is it simply the speed or the volume of traffic? Because I've traveled on the St. Thomas line many times, and there's really nowhere that safe to walk. Even if you just go take the other end of the St. Thomas line, drive down through the cove, you're basically exactly. walking on the road. I mean, the shoulders are pretty narrow. Some of them sloop yeah. right off into the ditch for the obvious reasons for controlling water. But So is it speed or, or volume? Speed, sir. Yeah, fair enough. Speed. I think sometimes there's, there's parameters up as high that, they, that it might break. And I'm not kidding. The the motorbikes and the vehicles, cars and trucks, they go by our window so fast that we it's just like trying to catch a fly. They're gone. Yeah, if and they it, lost if they lost control, I don't know what would happen. I'm afraid things are better. Well, and there's not a lot of long, clear sight lines on the St. Thomas line. It's hilly and windy. It's certainly nowhere to be driving fast. Nope. So you have a variety of factors inside of all of that. Uh the way people drive, by and large, is just completely reckless and too aggressive. You're not getting anywhere in a hurry, St. Thomas Line or anywhere else. So it's too bad it's happening. And then add to the fact that it's a primary access road, so you can't put a bunch of speed bumps and other traffic calming measures in there because it's you know that's where first responders, that's their only point of access for so many homes and so many people. That's right. So yeah, yeah, that's right. But uh, I just thought when I called the RNC and the RCMP that they would at least come in and just park on O'Brien's way even. And there's the thing that they check speeds with. I don't know how to call. But uh, if they just parked at O'Brien's way and just checked it out, and they would see that I'm not kidding, and many more people uh, are around the same uh, page. Yeah, well, I, I again, like I say this many, many times, you're calling from St. Thomas Line with this concern, and someone is sitting at home, sitting on whatever other high-speed area, and they're saying the exact same thing. People oh, yeah. just need to relax when they drive around. I mean, one of the old slogans here at the station was arrive alive. People, we, yep. the OCM cares. You really diminish your opportunity to get there safe and for everyone else around you when you're just driving like a bat out of hell, regardless of where we're talking about. Yep. So, uh, I, I, we, anyone at there and or RCMP, could just listen when people call, you know, about this because it's very serious, Patty. I'm in the minority. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't think the police even have enough resources to add to their traffic enforcement divisions. That's what I'm told. They got more calls coming into the RNC every single day that they can actually handle, let alone enhance focus on speed. From where I sit, the two things that slow me down the most, not only a cop car, but it's those radar screens where they show the speed you're traveling. That slows me down if I'm driving too fast. Secondly, and I know I'm in the minority here, I'm still a full-on proponent of speed cameras, red light cameras and otherwise. Absolutely, yep. let's put them in place. That'll slow people down. And if it doesn't, we can just send them their ticket in the mail. Yeah, but uh, they, even with those uh, speed things up, uh, people don't uh, obey them. People don't pay any attention. They just fly by. Yeah, I'm just saying they slow me down. Like whenever I encounter one and I know it's a 50 zone and I'm clocked in at 60, then I'm a bit more aware because sometimes yeah. it's easy enough to find yourself, especially if a, a road that's wide enough to feel like 60 is not going too fast. But of course yeah. it's too fast. So My advice yeah. is for those people, ignorant as they are, to just have common sense enough to slow down when a sign says 50 or 45 or school, school zones especially. Yeah, well, I live in a school zone neighborhood, and just last word, and I'll let you summarize with whatever you have. So I live in a, a small neighborhood that has a small neighborhood school. 
And the road that the school is on is a really big, wide road. And because of it, people drive too fast on that road. So what they've done, I guess based on some requests from the neighborhood, is they've put in four different spots where we've got speed bumps now. And I don't mind. I mean, if it slows people down, it's good enough for me. You know, but someone made the point to me the other day is, because I've got to go over four different sets of speed bumps to get down the road, some people might think like, well, I got to drive faster between the speed bumps because yeah. I got to slow down for the speed bumps. I never thought about it like that, but that's probably true. Yeah. Oh, speed bumps wouldn't wouldn't matter in here, myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if they had to go over a boulder, some would. Hard drive. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for this this morning. Okay. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm all about the cameras. I don't know why so many people push back. And, okay, I get it. Yeah, we'd have to install front license plates. All right. And then the old age-old tired reaction is, well, what about if it's not me driving my car? Well, if I lend my car to Fonce on today, the 15th of August, and in a month from now I get a ticket that was issued on the 15th of August, I'm giving Fonce the ticket. So pretend we can't figure some of these really small hurdles out. Seems a bit much to me. All right, let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. You'll get the last word. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's see. Line number two, Jackie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. I realize that you don't do the loss of sound and that stuff, but... That's okay. Go ahead. I, I found a walking cane, lovely carved, and the hand is, the handle's custom to whoever owns it. Now, I put it on the trading post, and I put it on all the sites to try and find the owner. But maybe they don't have internet. Anyway, I found it at James Pond in Marystown. On the picnic bench. And so describe it again. You said it looks like someone specially carved it for someone and a, oh, a form-fit handle and what have you. Is that what you said? Yes, there's sponge on the handle, so it's custom-fit for whoever owns that handle. Okay. So I hate to sod somebody out there without their cane. Yeah, well, I, sometimes, and I don't want to say something that comes across as saucy. Sometimes I'm a little surprised when I hear about someone who lost the cane because you would think that someone who had the cane and dropped the cane would pick up the cane because they needed the cane. So it's hard to know. It may, maybe fell out of the back of something or whatever the case may be. So It was left on a picnic table. Oh, there you go. Simply walked away. It was on the table. Okay, so if you lost your cane around Jane's Pond, Mary's Town, just left it on the picnic table, Jackie got it, and she'd love to give it back to you. Do you want him to call us, Jackie? Do you want to give us your number? What do you want to do? I'll put up my number, 357. 357? 2340-2340. So hopefully between that leather yeah, bracelet and the cane. cane. What? I personally, I personally use a cane myself. Oh, do you? Now, sometimes I do walk away from it because I can walk a bit, so... Understood. Like I said, I wasn't trying to be saucy, but uh, hopefully whoever owns that cane, you've got it, and you can get it back to the person. All they have to do is call 357-2340. And you're allowed to be saucy. That makes the show. (laughs) Every now and then. Okay, thank you so very much. Thanks, Jackie. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So um, anyway, I was going to read that particular email, but it's a bit too... 
too much no-mindedness to even worry about it. All right, final check of the morning on the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And so there's a lot that's going on in the province, obviously. And just to follow up regarding the caller who thought out loud that we've really got to do more to streamline the process for newcomers to the country with accreditation and training in any level of health care, whether that be a registered nurse, wherever they came from, NP, LPN, doctor, whatever it is. Of course, we're not talking about downgrading standards. And we're not just saying, oh, you went to med school, fine. Not following up, not making them do standardized exams, dealing with language barriers. Of course we're doing that because it's required. You know, they're put in a level of authority and care that we have to ensure that they're up to the task. But so many of them who absolutely are, are just waiting too long and going to uh, enduring expenses, which are maybe enough for them to say, well, you know what? It might not be worth it. All right. Good show today. Really appreciate all the support that the program gets. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonce King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.